All right, I hope you're uh, having a good day. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, and I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, today, we're going to uh, kind of conclude our, our 12-week series on the book of Ephesians, and as we do so, I want to say a, a few words about the book of Ephesians in general, some of the major themes that you may have seen, or, or for some of us, uh, this might be a review, uh, but let me offer a word of prayer first. Thank you, Lord, that we're here. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for your people. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who is present with us. And Lord, we invite you to address us, and we just want to, as much as we can, open up our hearts and open up our minds to you and invite you to inform us and instruct us. We ask also that you would encourage us and equip us, Lord, for this life that you've called us to lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So uh, we've been studying the book of Ephesians, which I think has been a deep and rich and uh, a good study, very stimulating, I think at times very challenging. And what I want to do before I uh, get into our passage for today is I want to give you some of the major themes of the book of Ephesians, okay, just so we can get kind of like pull back a little bit, get a big picture. And uh, let me mention five themes that you may have seen as well. Uh, first of all, uh, the book of Ephesians is about God's purpose and God's eternal purpose, and nothing's going to thwart his purpose. It's about uh, God's eternal and loving design, his plan. And part of that plan is that he chose believers before the creation of the world, before the creation of the world. And he determined that we should be adopted into his family as his children. And God had a good plan for us. Uh, second theme, besides God's purpose, the second theme is Christ the center. And this book is so much uh, filled with Christ and, and teaching about him. We see that Christ is exalted as the central meaning of the universe. Christ is exalted as the focus of history. Uh, he's the creator. He's the sustainer of all creation. And he's the head of his body, which is also called the church. Because Christ is central to everything, that means that we must be central, that he must be central to us as well. And he must be our highest value and the focus of our lives. Christ must be at the center, receiving our total devotion and ordering our priorities. You ever heard this saying, that if Christ is at the center of your life, then the circumference will take care of itself? Do you believe that? I really do believe that. If Christ is at the center of your life, then the circumference will take care of itself. It's like when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else shall be added unto you. Or it's like when Psalm uh, 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If Christ is at the center of your life, this circumference will take care of itself. So these are great themes in Ephesians. God's purpose, his eternal purpose, now being unfolded in Christ and in the church, and then Christ the center. Here's another great theme from Ephesians. It's about the church, the living church, the living church. The church is God's masterpiece, his splendid work of art. Under Christ's control, the church is a family, also called a dwelling, a living body to carry out the work that he began on earth. And I want you to think about this because I don't know how you see the church, but this is absolutely vital. And the book of Ephesians is largely about not only Christ and our relationship with him, but about what it means to be the church, our identity in Christ, and then our role in carrying out God's purpose and God's will for the church. He is the... Um, the church is the continuation of, of Christ's incarnation. You know the word incarnation? The word made flesh and dwelt among us. God in flesh. 
Uh, and we celebrate that, of course, especially at Christmas, that uh, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh and walked among us as a human being. Well, that incarnation is now continued. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's here with us in his spirit. But now his incarnation is continuing through his church, his body. We are the body of Christ. So the church is the continuation of Christ's incarnation, the ongoing presence of Jesus in the world. Now that means really that the church most simply defined is the presence of Jesus in the world. It's the body of Christ, right? We are the body of Christ and he is the head. And that means that our task, ultimately our task is to make Jesus visible because most of the world doesn't see him or know him or believe in him. Our task is to make Jesus visible by the way that we live and the things that we say. And so that's why there are so many appeals in Ephesians to the unity of the church because if we are just, if we're divided, then that tarnishes our witness. It, it like, if you think about it, the body of Christ now is portraying Jesus to the world. And so if we're selfish, if we're self-serving, if we're divided, if we're half-hearted, if we're complacent, then the picture that we're giving to the world of Jesus is distorted. It's not really Jesus as he really is. So the body has to match the head, right? The body has to match the head so that Christ can be fully expressed. Now, as Christ's body, this is really important, we live in vital relationship with him. And people in the world should be able to see Christ when they look at us. They should see uh, through our values and through our lifestyle and through our, the way we walk and the way we talk, they should see something of the reality and the presence of Jesus. So that's the living church, and the book of Ephesians has taught us so much about that. Uh, along with that, the next theme is about the new family. The new family. Because God, through Christ, paid the penalty for our sin and forgave us, he has reconciled us with God by grace through faith. But then when he reconciles us, he, he unites us together as the family of God, the family of Christ. A new society, a new family, brought near to God, we now form this new community. Um, so this is really important. Being united with Christ is not just an individual spiritual thing. It's like when you're united with Christ, then you become united with his family. It's like he says, look around, you've got brothers and sisters that you've never met before, and I want you to meet them. So because we are one family in Christ, it means there should be no barriers. We should have no division. There should be no basis for discrimination. We all belong to Christ, and we have the responsibility to accept and welcome others who belong to Christ regardless of their, their age or their gender or their status in life or their education or their nationality or their social status or their personality type. Uh, do you know Christians you don't like? I wouldn't admit it either. <laughs> but you don't have to like everybody, but you got to love everybody, right? And so... Um, you know, and I've, I've seen this, you know, I've had the experience, especially in recent years, to spend a considerable amount of time in other nations, especially nations of Asia. And, um, and this is true. I, every time I go overseas to China or to Myanmar or to Japan or Vietnam or Cambodia, I always meet Christians I didn't know before, right? And yet uh, there's this kind of instant affinity. Even though we don't know each other, we know that we belong to the same Lord and we're part of the same family, and it changes everything. And so I think we ought to see that, that unfortunately one of the things that tarnishes our witness is when Christians are backbiting and criticizing each other and when they're divisive and 
when they're jealous of each other, um, all it does is it, it, it gives the world a distorted picture of Jesus. And sometimes people, we know this, right? Sometimes people say, well, if, if, if you're Jesus' people, then I don't really want to know Jesus based on what I've seen in you. It ought to have the exact opposite effect, right? So that brings us to not only being the, the living church and a new family, but that brings us to Christian conduct. And again, the book of Ephesians encourages a lot about Christian conduct. It encourages all Christians uh, to wise living, to godly living, to have a pure heart, to, um, to kind of a, just this living for Christ in a way that's distinct and different from the way of the world. And as a new community now, we're supposed to live by Christ's standards, right? According to his commandments, uh, claiming his promises, and, and it's, it's not just all through our own effort. God also provides for us the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit who is a down payment upon our salvation, the Holy Spirit who enables us to live the way of God. And the church is actually called, in the book of Ephesians, a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So this is not just all through our own effort, but the Holy Spirit is given to us. You know, the Bible says when you give your life to Jesus... You receive forgiveness of your sins, but you also receive the Holy Spirit, which means God's life come into your life and then to be lived through your life. But it's not just individually, but as a people, as a family, as a, as a corporate entity. So it's all good. It's all good, right? Um, the purpose of God, Christ the center, the living church, the new family, a Christian conduct that, that honors Christ. However, we also find in Ephesians, especially when we get to the end here in chapter 6, instructions about our adversary, the devil. Sometimes he's called the accuser of the brethren. Sometimes he's called the deceiver. And, and that brings us to our, our final section of Ephesians today and, and this message called power. Did you notice that in your worship program there's some notes, some, there's an outline for this message? Maybe you want to take that out because that's going to help you fill, uh, follow along here. But this is what I want to say. And I think this is something that, that the Bible is so clear about. There is an evil, personal, supernatural power, uh, sometimes called the devil. I remember when Jesus said, um, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly, John 10, 10. I think when he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, that's a good description of our adversary, of the devil. Because he wants to undermine human life and human dignity, and uh, he wants to undermine God's purpose. You know, the Bible says that, that every person was made and created in the image of God, with worth and dignity and value, and yet there are so many forces in our society which are undermining that worth and dignity and value, right? Things that enslave us and addictions and people who exploit other people and all of that. And, and you know what? That's the work of the adversary of the destroyer, of the one who wants to thwart God's purposes and the fulfillment of his will. A lot of people don't believe that. But the Bible says that Satan is very real, and he's personal, and he is the leader of a host of wicked angels, fallen angels. They're called demons, and they've set out to ruin humanity and destroy the church. And so Jesus calls Satan a liar and the father of lies. This is John 8.44, John 8.44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry, he's talking to some hypocritical religious leaders. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, 
for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's what Jesus, how Jesus describes the devil. It's uh, John 8, verse 44. And so I want you to think about this. There is a spirit of deception and lies that's very prevalent in our world today. And sometimes the lies are things like, uh, oh, God doesn't really love you. In fact, that really there is no God. Or God can't really affect your life. Or you can't really trust in him. And he could never forgive you after what you've done. Or God can use other people, but he could never use you because you're just worthless. We receive these messages. Sometimes we internalize these messages. They are lies from the evil one who is a liar and the father of lies. Sometimes he's called the deceiver. And his purpose would be to undermine God, the purposes of God, to thwart the kingdom of God, to destroy the church of God. So we have an adversary. We have an enemy. But Jesus has come to overcome Satan. So now if you have your notes, at the top of those notes, there's a passage from Hebrews 2. You have that? Let's read that out loud together. The, the passage right at the top of the, of the notes from Hebrews 2. Uh, let's read that together. Ready? Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Okay, it's a great verse. Since the children, meaning you and me, have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus, shared in, in our humanity. That's what we call the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So Jesus took on flesh and blood so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. So explicit, right? Jesus believed in the devil and Jesus fought the devil and his death overcame the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, here's what the Bible seems to be saying. Jesus has already won the victory over sin and self and death and Satan. However, the fruition of that victory is not yet apparent, and we all know that, right? So that in a sense, and I don't know all the reasons for this, but God has continued to allow Satan a certain limited authority. So Satan is sometimes called the God of this world or the God of this age. And there is going to come a time when God is going to just eliminate Satan. But that day is not this day. So we live in this day now where there is spiritual conflict and where Satan still has a certain authority. I was thinking about this. Like when I was growing up, we used to play this game. I never liked it very much, but we used to play this game called tetherball. How many of you have ever played tetherball? Okay. So there's a metal pole, right? And then there's a, at the top of the pole, there's a chain, at least the way we played it. And then from the chain, there's a rope attached to the chain. And then on the end of that rope, there's attached a ball, right? And you try to hit that ball this way and get it to go around the, the pole. And your opponent tries to hit the ball the other way and get it to go around the pole the other way. The thing I really remember about tetherball, it really hurts when you hit the knob on that ball, the... Um, you're not supposed to do that, but I don't know, I used to do that. Anyway, here's the thing about tetherball. Let's say you're just an innocent bystander and you're watching two people play tetherball and they're battling it out. And if you stand too close, you're going to get hit by the ball. Right? You say, hey, I'm not even playing, but that ball is going to hit you. But the ball has a certain realm of, I guess we might say a realm of authority, but it, you can step outside that circle right? and you can be shielded from the destruction of being hit by the 
tetherball. Okay, so I want you to think about this. God has given or allowed Satan to continue to have a certain limited authority. And he is a liar and a deceiver and the adversary and the accuser and the destroyer. And he is in some places wreaking havoc on people's souls. He is undermining marriages. He is destroying families. Uh, the, the most blatant, horrific, disturbing evidence I've ever seen of Satan's work is when I was in Cambodia. At Phnom Penh, outside of Phnom Penh, there's an area where, where you can go visit. It's called the Killing Fields. And from 1975 to 1979, the Khmer Rouge were in power in Cambodia, and they slaughtered millions of people. Some people say 1.5 million people. Some people think it was more like 2 million people. But this was in a country that only had about 9 million people at the time. So we're, we're talking a huge portion of the population got wiped out by the, the tyranny and the brutality of the Khmer Rouge. And you can go today to Cambodia, and you can see these plots of land, which they call killing fields, where there's evidence. There's mass graves. Um, there, there's some paintings of things that occurred during the time. One of the paintings that just I, I still remember is of, of soldiers taking babies and bashing their heads against tree trunks. You know, it's it just unbelievable. And, and there's a place there where there's a memorial today, and the memorial is, you know, glass you can observe. And, and inside that glass is just thousands of human skulls just stacked up. And it goes several stories up. And when I've been there, I've been there twice, and um, I always think, you know, I learned in school about man's inhumanity to man, about the brutality that people can inflict on each other. And we know about that, but I've never seen it more stark and horrific than I've seen there. And you know what? That's the work of Satan, the murderer, the liar, right? And that's a very extreme example, but there's a lot of other ways where Satan attacks people. And sometimes it's just through depression and suicidal thoughts. Sometimes it's through addiction. Sometimes it's through breaking up relationships. Sometimes it's by sowing the seeds of doubt and unbelief. So what the Bible is telling us is that this is very real. In fact, if you have your notes there, let me go on to um, point number one. Are we really in a spiritual war? Are we really in a spiritual war? And the Bible is very clear that we are. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, so it's about the reality of these forces of evil. And actually, if we deny them or deny their existence, we become ever more vulnerable to their effect and their influence. So it says here, it's not a battle. He says, you are in a struggle, and you've got to stand strong in the Lord. And you can stand strong in the Lord, but you've got to recognize the reality of the struggle of the battle, of the conflict in which we find ourselves. C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters, kind of a classic. He says this in The Screwtape Letters, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or about demons. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One error is to disbelieve in their existence 
And on the other hand, the other error is to believe in them, but to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Like the people who see a demon under every rock and tree, right? So he says, these are the two errors. Some people uh, just don't even believe in the reality of Satan and evil spirits. And of course, if you're not aware of their reality, then they're going to affect you in ways that you're not even aware of. And other people are obsessed with this stuff. So he says, those are the two errors. He says, they themselves, meaning the demons, the evil spirits, are equally pleased by both errors. And they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, here's what the Bible says. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this, The God of this age, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Did you know the Bible says that? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, for some of us, that's going to actually really help us because we're so frustrated that we have people in our, in our lives, people that we love and care about, people that we've been praying for who don't know the Lord. And we think, why, why don't they come to the Lord? They, they, they obviously need Him. Sometimes they're really struggling through problems that they can't solve. And we've been praying for them and loving them, and we've been you know, introducing them to other believers, perhaps. We've been doing our best to try to share the good news of Jesus and God's love. And yet some people are just still not responsive. And we think, well, what's going on there? What can I do? What can I do? Now, I want to say two things are going on. At least two things are going on. One is everybody has their own free will. So some people are just not responsive, and that's their choice. And it's not your fault that they're not responsive. They're just, you know, that's the choices they're making. But the other thing that, that's going on here, which we wouldn't know if the Bible didn't reveal this to us, is that there's an unseen spiritual struggle. That there is a God of this age who has a certain limited power in the world right now. And one of the things that he loves to do is he blinds the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. They cannot see God as good. Or they, they have a hard time believing in the reality of God. Or when they hear about Jesus, it just doesn't make any sense to them. And some of it could be their own stubbornness of heart or stubbornness of mind. But also the Bible is saying there is a, an evil one, there's an evil power in the world that is trying to blind the minds of unbelievers so they won't see the light of God. They won't understand the love of Jesus. Now, what does that mean for us? Does it mean we just throw up our hands and give up? We'll just write them off. We can't do that, right? It means we've got to fight this spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. It means that if a person who's spiritually blind is going to have their eyes open, God has to do something in their lives. It's not just us and our, our clever arguments or you know, our, our exacting apologetics or anything, right? So we do what we can, but we call upon the Lord to do what only He can. Only God can harden, can soften a hardened heart. Right? Only God can help someone see that they are spiritually thirsty and needy. Because there is an adversary, and one of the things He loves to do is just blind the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel. Now, here's one thing Jesus said. This is on your notes. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 8. First John 3, 8. He says, But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. I'm sorry, did I say Jesus said that? John, the apostle, says this. But he says, When people keep on sinning, as you know, most people do, it shows that they're under the influence of the devil. I don't mean they're demon-possessed or anything. I just mean that, that when we keep on sinning, 
which is rebellion against God, which is disobedience against God and the ways of God, as we do that, we're playing right into Satan's hands. In fact, what he would do is he would love to just lure people away from God and his will and his goodness and get them to follow their own disobedience or their own stubbornness, their own self-will. So when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But here's the good news. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. So we are in a war, and I hope you're on the right side in this war, but it's a real war. We, have, we face a real enemy, and life in Christ, see, life in Christ will plant you in a relationship with him, with the God who created you. It'll also plant you in the community of God's people, but life in Christ will also plant you in the midst of a spiritual battle. And the people who have the least chance of being victorious in that battle are the people who don't even believe they're in a battle, who don't believe that there's a war going on here. So we face this formidable opposition, and beneath surface experiences, there's an unseen battle raging, and we've got to face our opposition. We've got to learn about it. Now, I want to tell you some good news. The Bible, before Ephesians closes, is going to give us some instruction about how to be in this war and how to fight this war. Okay? First thing, know that you're in a spiritual war. Number two, this is on your notes, know your enemy, know your enemy. And here's the way the enemy is described, again, in chapter 6, Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, and here's the enemy, the rulers, the authorities, the, spirit, the powers of this dark world. One translation says, this present darkness. Remember, you, remember that book title in that movie? comes from this verse, a different translation. Uh, our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's who our struggle is against. And we've got to face that. that so, so this is what the Bible is saying. There is a personal evil spirit called Satan. Uh, demons in the Bible, you know what demons are? Demons are fallen angels who also rebelled along with Satan against God. And demons decided to follow Satan instead of God. So they are in legion with Satan. And they kind of, in a way, they do the bidding of their master, who is the accuser of the brethren, the adversary, the destroyer, the deceiver. So this is the spiritual battle that we're in. In Luke 10, 19, Jesus says I have, to his disciples, he says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Two things Jesus is telling us here. We do have an enemy. Jesus believed in Satan. Maybe you don't, but Jesus did. But he says, you have a real enemy, but I'm going to give you the power to overcome the enemy. And so that's the good news. We need not be discouraged here or even frightened, but we do need to be alert and wary because we are in the middle of this conflict, whether we realize it or not. Okay, point number three, put on your armor. Put on your armor. And uh, this is great. God gives us some armor to wear, but you don't want to, it's like, don't leave home without it, right? Don't go into battle without your armor. Here's the way it's described, chapter 6, verses 13 to 17. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, okay? When you study the Bible, you look for repeated words or ideas or concepts, because that's a clue that something really important is being said. 
And if you read this, you see there's a big emphasis here on standing firm, standing your ground, right? Don't be tossed and turned like the waves. Don't, don't be shaken, right? Don't flake out. Don't run away in fear. Stand firm. Stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. This is part of the armor of God, right? The belt of truth. With the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and then take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, so put on your armor. And that's really important. God has not left us defenseless. And the, these are the pieces of the armor. Let me just comment on them briefly. He, first of all, he says, put on the belt of truth. Right? Put on the belt of truth. Um, and that's in verse 13. No, verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And the belt of truth, of course, is God's truth. It's the revelation of God's truth. As he's given it to us in Jesus Christ, as he's given it to us in the scriptures, we stand on God's truth, not on the fickleness of public opinion, right? Not on whatever the popularity polls dictate. We stand on the truth of God, the revelation of God in Christ through the scriptures. Also, the belt of truth could have to do with our own personal truthfulness, too, that we have to be people of integrity, of sincerity. We have to be people of honesty. And, and, and we stand on the truth, and then we live out of the truth as truthful people. He says, put that belt on. Don't go into battle without it. Remember, Satan, one of Satan's characteristics is he's the deceiver. And we have to stand against the deception and the lies of Satan with the belt of truth, with the truth of God as he's revealed himself and his will and his ways in the Bible. Okay? Then it says also, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And the breastplate of righteousness, you know what that's talking about? I think it's talking about Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness, which has now been uh, put on us through the cross of Christ. In other words, this is what we call justification, right? You have been justified through Christ's sacrifice on the cross for you, and now you stand before him, not as a sinner condemned, you stand before him righteous, forgiven, cleansed, made new. So you stand in the righteousness of God that Christ has won for you. You put on that breastplate of righteousness. You stand in Christ's righteousness through your justification uh, by God's grace through faith. You are justified. And God's gracious initiative, God's put, put sinners right with himself through Christ. Now also, I think this uh, idea, the breastplate of righteousness, it also could allude to our own righteousness, right? As a result of being made righteous in Christ through faith, we now are called to live righteously. So you might think of this as moral righteousness, that we're called to live uh, in righteous character, in God-honoring conduct. We're, we're to have a consistent daily walk with Jesus. And so that's part of our righteousness. As we receive righteousness from God, we then live in that righteousness and we live out that righteousness. We express it in our own lives. Which means Christians ought to be known as really honest people and trustworthy people. And, you know, I don't know if this ever happened to you. I've heard business people say, oh, I don't like to deal with Christians because they're not trustworthy or they're not honest. And I don't know, if you ever heard that, that just grieves me so because of all the people Christians ought to be known as the most trustworthy, right? The most honest, people of integrity. 
put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, there's an interesting phrase that, that comes next. It says, uh, verse 15, And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And what is that? It's talking about certain kind of footwear. Not famous footwear, but Roman footwear, Roman soldier footwear. Okay, and Roman soldier footwear, they would wear these boots for battle, right? And often they would have like these spikes coming out of the sole, you know, like, like we think of cleats. Like, I don't know, last night at the Apple Cup, I know it rained a lot, so I assume the field was soggy. And I know this, that football players have to wear different kinds of cleats depending on the, the condition of, this, of, this, of the ground, right? So if it's really wet and soggy and slippery, then you have to wear longer cleats. Am I saying that right? Okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? So this is the idea. When he says, you've got your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, it could be like those Roman boots that dig into the ground and, and create a certain firmness and steadfastness, right? So you're not shaken, you're not easily swayed, you're not pushed around by the forces of evil because you've got your boots firmly on the ground, right? Boots on the ground. And, uh, and those who are wearing them have firm footing. Now here he's saying the gospel of peace, that gives you firm footing, that gives you a firm place to stand. You know, in a world that, that often is putting people down, we've got good news, and the good news is of peace through Christ and peace in Christ. And you know the word peace in the Bible, it, it doesn't just mean uh, time out, we're, we're going to not fight right now, we're, you know, it doesn't just mean a, a break from the war or the battle. The word peace in the Bible has to do with fullness of life well-being, wholeness. Now here we've told, we've got the gospel of peace. And if you think of that like you put the gospel of peace on like you put on your boots, it's going to help you stand firm in a world of shifting emotions and opinions. So I think that's part of it, that uh, have your feet shed or adorned with the gospel of peace is like you have a certain firm place to stand. In a world that's, you know, turning and shifting and unreliable and often unstable. Uh, there's another definition or another explanation of this, this phrase, uh, your feet fitted with the gospel, with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And that's this. If you've got the gospel, which is the good news of God, it's your responsibility to take that gospel to other people. So you put your shoes on and you go out, right? And so it's not only about firmness and steadfastness and having a firm place to stand, but it's also about taking the gospel out. So this is one thing I'll tell you about the devil. The devil hates the gospel. He really does. Because the gospel is the good news of salvation through Christ. The gospel is the good news about how people can get freed from their, their bondage and their addiction and their condemnation and how they can be cleansed and forgiven and freed in Christ and how they can now live a life devoted to Christ and no longer serve Satan, the God of this age, but now put themselves under a new authority, the liberating authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the, so Satan hates the gospel. He doesn't want people to hear the gospel, to understand it, to respond to it, or to follow it. And here what we're told is, we're the people who've got the gospel of peace. Put your shoes on and go share it. The world needs to hear it. The world needs to know. Isn't that right? That's right. Gospel piece. Here, here's the next, the next piece of armor. is called the shield of faith. Verse 16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, 
in the, in the original language here, there's different words for shield that could be translated as shield in English. And one word is a, the Roman shield that's kind of a small circular shield. But that's not the word that's used here. The word that's translated shield here is the big shield. I think it was about two feet by four feet. It covers most of your body, right? In fact, you've probably seen this in some of those gladiator movies or something. A bunch of Roman soldiers would have those big shields and they'd line them all up next to each other. So those shields all put adjacent to each other form kind of like a wall. Sometimes they would even put the shields above their, their heads to shield them from flaming arrows that might be shot at them, right? So that's the kind of shield here. And it says our, our shield, we take up the shield of faith. And with that shield, we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You know what that means? Satan is the aggressor. He's shooting at us. And he'll shoot these arrows, which could be called what? Doubt, discouragement, despair. He'll shoot arrows toward us of, of temptation, trying to tempt us into greed or into lust or into cheating or into selfishness, right? Satan will, will shoot arrows at us to try to undermine our faith and try to pull us away from God and try to ruin our witness, and try to divide our fellowship. Satan's always shooting these flaming arrows. And, and what they would do back then, they would have the shield, and sometimes the shield would have kind of like a, like a leather layer over it, and then they would soak that leather in water so that when the flaming arrow would hit it, the shield would extinguish the flame. I think that's the image here. It says, you know what? Don't go into battle without your armor. And it says, in addition to all that other armor, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Maybe that arrow for you is false guilt. Maybe it's a message you heard or that you just somehow incorporated into your life that you're no good, that you don't matter, that you're not really of much value, or God couldn't really love you, or God can never forgive you after what you've done. Or God could never use someone like you. These are like flaming arrows. And Satan will shoot those arrows at you to try to undermine your faith and try to destroy your relationship with God or discourage you from full devotion to following Jesus. And you've got to put up the shield, the shield of faith that says, I know whom I believe, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. It's the shield of faith that says, I know my Redeemer lives and that at the end he will stand. It's the shield of faith that says, if I would seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things are going to be added unto me. It's the shield of faith that says, if I would just give my whole life to uh, desiring the Lord and delighting myself in him, then he will give me the desires of my heart. It's the shield of faith that says, even though other people have abandoned me, the Lord will never abandon me. Even though someone else has rejected me, the Lord will never reject me. It's the shield of faith, and you hold up that shield of faith because Satan will try to shoot all kinds of arrows of doubt and dissension and discouragement and discord, and you hold up that shield of faith. I know my God, and I know he's good, and I will not be afraid, and I will not cower, and I will not surrender. Hold up that shield of faith. Now that's your armor, right? That's your armor. It goes the, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet. Oh, the helmet of salvation. Now the helmets, of course, guard your mind, right? And so 
the helmet of salvation is like guarding your mind with the things of God. I know that I'm saved, even though Satan tries to tell me that I'm not. I know that I'm forgiven, even though I don't feel forgiven at this moment, right? The helmet of salvation means you focus on the things that God has revealed to you about yourself. You are loved. You are worthwhile. You are forgiven. You are saved. You belong. God loves you. You're one of his. And, and let that be the helmet of salvation that protects your mind from all the lies and dis distortion and deceit of the evil one. That's really important, right? We fill our minds with the things of God and the truth of God, and we stand on that. Now, that's our armor for protection. Now, there are some offensive weapons here, too. So at the end of verse 17 there, it says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's our weapon, the sword of the Spirit. Also, I think our weapon is prayer. And if you look at 18, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, and with this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, Paul says, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Okay? So this is what I want us to see, is that we have some offensive weapons, and those weapons are primarily these two things. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's the Scriptures. And then it's prayer. And with these two weapons, we not only hold strong and stand strong, with these two weapons, we advance on the enemy and the enemy's territories. Much of this world is still under the power of the kingdom of darkness. Much of this world is still lost and apart from God. Much of this world still experiences some of the results of that separation from God in terms of division, hostility, exploitation, human, human trafficking, exploiting the poor, prejudice against people that are different. And, and where that's true, then God's people are supposed to move forward and advance. We've got the helmet, we've got the belt, we've got the shield, but we've also got the sword, which is the truth of the Word of God. And we're to bring the truth of God to bear amidst the lies and deceptions of this world. We're to stand with God, which means we've got to know the, the Bible. Uh, I think one of the things that Satan is using right now in our country, it's not so much persecution. You know what it is? It's seduction. God's people are being seduced into the ways of the world, the thinking of the world, the values of the world, the morality of the world. And the way to combat that is with the sword. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which, which corrects us when we're wrong, which rebukes us when we need to be corrected, and then leads us forward, leads us forward so that we can, in a sense, retake territory that's now in darkness. See, when Jesus came, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then he starts calling people to follow him. And he says, come follow me. I'll teach you how to fish for people. We're going to go forward, right? And as the mission goes forward, then what's happening? We're pushing back the darkness. The light has come, pushing back the darkness. I hope a lot of that's going to happen this month. I mean, I mean next month, December, Advent, Christmas season. It could be a time when a lot of Christians just get conformed to the world and all the busyness and consumerism and materialism of the world. Or it could be a time when Christians uh, put on the, the truth of God and have the, the love of Christ filling our hearts. And Christians take a special care 
for people in need or people who are lonely or people who seem lost or, or people who seem in bondage to their own materialism or consumerism. When, when Christians would take, a, uh, take up their courage and be fearless in, in loving people in Jesus' name and sharing the good news of Jesus and inviting people to places where they can learn about God. This could be a, a great month, actually, of pushing back the darkness and shining the light of Jesus. Okay, so take up your weapons. Take up your weapons. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. This is on your outline. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Warren and Ruth Myers, they wrote an article called Weapons That Work. Weapons That Work. Uh, Let me read you a few sentences from it. Prayer is God's heavy artillery in the battle against the invisible evil spirits who war against our souls and against God. As C.S. Lewis wrote, God is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. You know what he's talking about? Sabotaging Satan's reign and Satan's rule in his kingdom with the light and love of Jesus. Prayer lets us operate behind enemy lines, softening resistance, confusing strategies, strategies of the devil, confusing strategies, cutting off supplies, and defeating evil purposes. Prayer gives us constant opportunity to be on active duty in this spiritual war. So, are you on the bench or are you on active duty? This is a time not just to be in the reserves. This is a time to be on active duty. And we move forward and we move the gospel forward and we advance the kingdom and we shine the light of Jesus through sharing his love and his grace and his truth. Okay, the last point here, number five, be fearless. Be fearless. Paul says... In verse 19 and 20, he says, pray also for me. Now, if you've been studying Ephesians, remember in chapter 1, Paul gave a long prayer for the Ephesians. And in chapter 3, Paul gave a long prayer for the Ephesians. Now here at the conclusion, he says, and pray for me too. Verse 19, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, you do have an enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Is it going to be you? It doesn't have to be you. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. And we can do that. Until Jesus returns... We're going to be engaged in a relentless struggle against evil and the forces of evil. And for that struggle, we're going to need the strength of the Lord. We're going to need the Holy Spirit. We're going to need the armor of God. We're going to need the belt of truth and the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith. And we're going to have to constantly take up our weapons, the word of God and prayer. Fortunately, Paul ends this letter on a very upbeat note. He's going to send this man Tychicus to the Ephesians. He's probably carrying this letter, what we call the book of Ephesians. And in verse 21, he says, Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. And I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. P. 
Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. So Paul here, he's going to give his final greetings and basically he's saying, I'm sending this man to you so that he can inform you how we are and what's going on, but also so that he can encourage you. And then Paul just ends with blessing. Peace to you. Love, faith from God. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love. Now, we're not responsible for changing people's hearts if they're resistant to God. But here's what we can do. We can pray. We can pray and we can join Jesus in his mission. Scattering his love, scattering his grace, scattering his message. And then let God do his work. Okay, pray. Let's pray. Now, it may be, as you think about it or as you pray about it, that you are becoming aware that there are certain ways in which Satan, the devil, the evil one, has been having his way in your life. Maybe to discourage you. Maybe to cause doubt. Maybe to cause you to live in fear and intimidation. Maybe just to distract you from full devotion to Jesus so that you know your love for the world is pulling you away from devotion to Christ. Lord, your word, your word cuts us in order to heal us. And Lord, you share these things, some hard truths, in order to expose us so that we might turn to you. So, Lord, do your work now in our hearts, in our lives. We do not want to be victims in this war. We don't want to lose this war without being aware that we're even in one. But, Lord, may we take up everything you've given to us, the armor of God, the weapons of God, the Spirit of God, in order to live strongly and to stand firm and to make advances for your kingdom and your glory. Thank you, Lord. Amen.